Well, good morning, church. Uh, it is wonderful to be able to share with you again this morning to those that are in Wills Point, those that are joining us online. I would just like to say welcome. We're very glad that you were here. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 13. Uh, we're going to be continue on, continuing on in our study of Romans. And um, it's chapter 13 that Thomas Constable, he referred to it as the premier New Testament passage uh, explaining the believer's civil responsibilities. Uh, he takes a good deal of time, very direct in how he addresses how we're to interact with the civil authorities in our lives um, and in civil matters. In chapter 12, as he shifted from uh, doctrine and theology, and he urges us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. He lays out the things that the things that should mark us as believers, what qualities we should have, that those things should be rooted in love. And last week, and over the last two weeks, verses 9 through 21 in chapter 12, Paul just, he loosely connected uh, several of these exhortations about how we are to live. But when he comes to 13, he makes a very well-organized argument on a single subject. And that is the subject of how we relate to or how we come into subjection to the governing authority to which we're over. So in Romans chapter 13, again, if you have your Bibles, I would love for us to read the text together uh, before we dive into it. So Paul says, Romans 13 verse 1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is a servant of God for your good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. He says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. He says, Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Let's pray real quick. Lord, I thank you for... This morning, I thank you for our time together. I thank you for the instruction of your word, Lord. And however difficult some things may be as we seek to understand your purpose in them, Lord, I pray that you just give us a clarity this morning of what your instruction is, Lord, and uh, how we are to respond to that instruction. I pray that you just bless our time, um, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So, verse 1 Paul begins with a command, and his command is, is let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now, oftentimes when we think of that, that idea or we hear that, we're, that we are to subject ourselves to something or come under the authority of certain things, in our nature, our human sinful nature, we want to buck that authority because we want to do what we want to do. We want our desires, we want to fulfill our desires, and we don't want to let go of that to come underneath someone else. But the word to be subject here, the word is hupatasso, which is to subject oneself or obey. But in Greek society, as a military term, 
This would, this would mean to arrange in a military fashion under a command of a leader. It would come under the command of a leader. You would arrange yourself in such a way to where you're, you're not necessarily supporting the leader, but you're supporting one another and you're, you have a goal in mind. You're following that leader to accomplish the thing to which the leader is leading you into. In a non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in. Now that right there, for many of us, can be a struggle, can it not? The voluntary, voluntary act of giving in. We oftentimes do not want to give in. Clearly, in secular society, outside of church walls, you see this very often, is, is an unwillingness to give in to someone else's point of view, someone else's idea, someone else's opinion in some way, or simply put, come underneath the authority of someone else to give in to them. But it exists even in the church. A lot of times, even as believers, right? We want Jesus as Savior, but we struggle to accept Jesus as Lord of our life because of the authority that he now has over us. And what that means for us, that we have to now forego our desires for his. But there's a willingness there as we are aware to be in subjection to these governing authorities. It's an attitude of giving in. It's cooperating. It's assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. Now, this gives us a, an additional idea when it comes to be subject. In the one sense, a voluntary act of giving in. And in some ways, when we have that idea, the reason we struggle is it's because we don't want to let go of what we want. Giving in implies that we let go of our desires on something and give in to the desires of others. But the word, it means to be cooperating. It's assuming responsibility that's there. It's carrying the burden. So when it comes to governing authorities, it's the idea that we're not just to, to come underneath the subjection of the governing authorities and then we are just completely passive in all matters of life. As, as things arise, that we do whatever that governing authority says and we have no say in the matter, but the word means that we cooperate with it, we share a responsibility with it, we carry a burden with it, but we are to engage with it. Praise the Lord in our context, in our society, we live under a democracy where as citizens we have a voice. But I will say this, a lot of the challenge that we see and the things that we the frame of mind we put ourselves in when we begin to think of governing authorities, a lot of the reasons that we got to the place that we are as kind of a sidebar thought is because of our passivity. It's because of our unwillingness to engage in the conversation within the culture. But yet our system is set up to give us a voice, but the more we don't speak into it, the more that voice becomes diminished. A little bit more on that later. Paul's command is be subject to the governing authorities. And then he says this. He says, for there is no authority except from God. No authority except from God. On one of the, if not the clearest statements of God's sovereignty in all the affairs of this world. Is that no authority that exists on this planet exists apart from God. He has instituted every one of them. Those that exist have been instituted by God, he says. A good example of this in your Bible, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, he tells him that he, God, removes kings and sets up kings. And as Daniel interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream, note what he says that illustrates Paul's point here. 
In chapter 2, verse 37 through 40, we have this on the, on the screen for you. Daniel, interpreting his dream, he says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory. Right at first, as he begins to interpret this dream, You, O king, you are a king, you have glory, you have might, you have power, but it has been given to you by the God of heaven. In verse 38, and he says, Into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You were the head of gold in his interpretation of this dream that he had. Verse 39, Daniel tells him, Now another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom that arises. So he's telling Nebuchadnezzar, Right now you're it. But you're it because God has made you it. But after you, there will be three other kingdoms that will arise after you. And the implication is that every one of those kingdoms will rise and authority will be given to them by the Lord. If he gave it to Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to give it to these kingdoms as well. But here in verse 44 is God's promise as he continues to interpret this. He says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. This final and fifth kingdom is God's kingdom. It's God's kingdom that will come, and he will set this kingdom up on earth, and it will destroy all other kingdoms. So the authority that set up kingdoms, one day that authority will come set up his kingdom to the demolishment of every other kingdom that he set up, but still all according to his purpose. Another example is John chapter 19. As Pilate is in, 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 uh, interrogating Jesus before his crucifixion, Pilate says to him, he says, Do you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Now wrap your mind around that for just a second. When it does come to authority, you have Pilate. Pilate is, is, is Caesar's man in Judea. And Caesar, at this point in time, is it. Caesar is the man. He is the authority. He's given his authority away to Pilate to oversee all of Judea. Now Pilate is standing before Jesus, who God's word tells us is the creator of the universe. And he's standing before him and he says, Do you not know that I have authority to let you go and I've got authority to crucify you? And Jesus simply responds, The only authority you have has been given to you. And everything you do with that authority comes under in some way, however we can think through it, we can't wrap our mind around it, but in every way that authority that has been given to him, Pilate, comes underneath the sovereignty and the plan of God. But what's interesting about that is, is Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, standing there, the one that has the ultimate authority in the universe, tells Pilate, Anything, any authority you have has been given to you. If I can drive that point home. And when we are told to subject ourselves to the governing authorities, we do that knowing that that authority only exists because of the one that instituted it, and that is God. So church, that should give us an overwhelming abundance of peace. 
As we think about the state of things, we, we can look back at history and we can see bad kings and bad kingdoms and bad authorities, but we can also see good as well. But when we see the bad, we can struggle with that because we can't wrap our mind around the whole thing. And that's the thing that robs us of peace. The peace that we should have with that truth, we struggle to have because we lack an understanding. We can't wrap our mind around God's sovereignty and God's ultimate plan. We, we, don't, we don't know these kingdoms in and out the way God did. But right now, we're living in that time. As, as Daniel interprets that dream, we are living within the kingdoms. But there is a kingdom that is coming, and that should give us peace. It should give us hope. But our struggle with commands such as we find here is because we run God's word through our understanding of what we see, as limited as it is. But the prerequisite for peace is not understanding. It is trust. So first and foremost, church, as we think through this command, as Paul tells us to be subject, subject to the governing authorities, the way we do that with a peace in our heart is we trust the Lord. It is very difficult to trust a government that isn't ruling well. But that's not Paul's point here. But we should trust God. If we can't trust God, we're certainly not going to be able to trust that. But if we trust something other, God, other than God, then we've, we've really begun to get things out of sorts. So his command, be subject. Verse 2, his caution. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. All right, so Paul's writing now not to address the believer's response to the ungodly acts of a governing authority. But instead, he's writing on and encouraging and telling how believers are to respond to those authorities whose standards and laws are not in conflict with God's. So as we approach this, let's not put ourselves in the mind of, hey, what do we do when the government is bad? Let's approach this from a standpoint of what do we do when the government is good? That's what Paul is getting at here. That's the encouragement. But he says here, his caution is, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And he says, and those who resist will incur judgment. But the, the struggle here, is, and, and the reality is, is that with, with all mankind, all humankind, we're all fallible, we're all broken in some way, we're all going to sin. Those that are in authority are going to abuse that authority. But ultimately, we are all responsible for our own actions. But when it comes to the government and the abuse of that authority, the government institution is passive as it pertains to its implementation. And now, what do I mean by that? It means that the authority of government can be and has been abused, not that government authority is abusive as it's implemented by God. So frame our minds for our time this morning around the idea that government is good and it's working properly according to God's standards. And Paul tells us this is how we are to respond. And his caution is, is in that, don't resist it. If you do, you're resisting what God has appointed and there will be judgment. Now, getting to a practical example of this, and before we get there, before we would talk about any, any federal level or, or state level or any issue we may be facing and discussing any of that on abortion, equity, pronoun use, or any other moral, ethical, or religious law that may exist, where is it that you and I are most directly going to interact with a governing authority? Consider with me a traffic stop. 
Okay, so you're driving down the road, and you come up to a stop sign, and you just kind of run through the stop sign. You slow down, but you don't come to a complete stop, and then you move on through, and then whoop, whoop, and you get pulled over, and the officer comes up, lets you know, hey, you ran that stop sign. I'm like, officer, no, I've got my seatbelt on. I wasn't texting. I'm a good driver. And in our mind, or your mind, you, you didn't really do anything wrong. So, yeah, you didn't come to a complete stop, but nonetheless, that officer writes you a ticket. Now, to rebel against that ticket would be resisting the authority that God has instituted. See how simple that is? When it comes to a speed limit sign, I can't drive 55. (laughs) If you got the reference, come find me and let me know. But oftentimes it's very easy. We see the speed limit sign, but we resist that authority that God has placed over us when we just fly by it faster than what the limit says. But why do we do that? We do that because our desire is to either just be rebellious or we're in a hurry, whatever excuse we may have. But to rebel against it, rebel against that ticket would be resisting what God has instituted. Now, the difficulty that is present in that when it comes to authority on something as simple as that is because we know that governing authority is human authority and human authority is still tainted and affected by sin. So the person that is exercising that authority over us is a sinner just like you and me. And we understand that fact, so we would level that playing field. As believers, we get it. We're all sinners. Every one of us are in the same boat on the same level in those terms. But yet someone now has been placed in authority over us. Max Anders says this. He says, but when an individual set apart from us by nothing but a gold badge asserts his or her authority over us, it is hard to see God in that blue suit. Amen? But God says he is there, and to resist him is to invite his blue-suited judgment. Now, as Paul says, and those who resist will incur judgment. And that judgment comes, ultimately, from the very authority that we're resisting, as God has instituted that authority to do. That's how God keeps us in check, in a way. But the more assertively and the more aggressively we resist that, we may find ourselves with additional fines and, at worst, arrested in that particular case. But now the question that we do want to answer and talk through. When? It's the question of when is resistance warranted? When are we able to resist against a governing authority? For the sake of time, let's look at a quick example. Acts chapter 4, verse 18 and 19. This is Peter and John. They're called uh, before the Jewish leaders. They've been preaching the gospel. This is after um, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and they go on preaching and telling people about Jesus and spreading his word, spreading his name. And they're called before the Jewish leaders. And here's what the Jewish leaders tell them. Verse 18 says, So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach all Teach it all in the name of Jesus. So the religious leaders of the day, the ones that had authority over the Jewish people, called them in there and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John responded thus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. 
We know from God's word that Jesus, his commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. But his commission is to go make disciples. In order to make disciples, you have to spread the word. You have to go tell people about Jesus. A direct command from the Lord to his apostles. They respond by doing that thing. The religious leaders tell them, you are not to do that. And Peter and John respond, no, we cannot bespeak, but speak of what we've seen and heard. In chapter 5, verse 29 of Acts, they say, we must obey God rather than men. So simply put, when is it that civil, civil disobedience is acceptable? When are we able to resist the governing authority? It is only when that governing authority commands, mandates, makes a law, charges us in some way to do something contrary to God's word, contrary to his law. Either do something that's contrary to his law or stop doing something that his law directly commands us to do. It is then and only then do we resist that governing authority. Otherwise, we're to be in subjection to it. But now the way in which we resist matters deeply. How is the next question that we do not have time to go into this morning of how all of that plays out? But how matters deeply? But if it's all rooted in love, if we go back to the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your strength. And the second is like it, you love your neighbor as yourself. If ever, we, we, our response in that should be rooted in love, however it may be. It does not mean that we immediately take up arms and seek to overthrow a bad government. government. A process should be taken. Steps should be taken peacefully. As much as it depends on you, we talked last week, live peaceably with all. So we respond in love, and there's ways. Again, we live in a democracy. We have a voice. There's ways in which you and I can resist that government whenever that government is enacting laws or policy that tells the believer to do something contrary to God's word or accept a thing to be contrary to God's word. Because it is very clear that the governing authorities in our day and age are rewriting the human language in many ways. There's a redefinition of what is actually moral. It's flipping on its head what God would say is good and God would say is evil. And there's a, seek, there's a seeking after a reversing of that. So a time may come sooner than later where the church may experience some pushbacks and persecution as we lean into some of these things. But we should have a voice and we do it through the process that's been put in place by the governing authority. But we do it Rooted in love. Now the key to discerning when that time has come is found in Paul's words, what God instituted. When rulers put themselves in the place of God by legislating moral and spiritual positions which are contrary to the revealed positions of God, resistance then is warranted, Max Anders says. What God has instituted, if an authority seeks to elevate itself over the place of God, that is when the church should respond, has a responsibility to respond. But the manner in which we respond deeply, deeply matters. So his command, his caution, now his connecting principle, verses 3 through 5, Paul, Paul tells us, he says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. 
for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. So they're not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Simply put, is, is the governing authority is there to, to keep bad people or the wrongdoer in check. Right? The, there's consequences to breaking the law. If the law is good and it is righteous, if it's according to God's standard, there is a, a consequence for that, and the governing authority is the one that is to act that out. For he is, this latter part of verse 4, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So he's a servant of God, and he is an avenger. So servant is diakonos. It's a civil ruler or a deputy. But deputies serve not under their own authority, but under the authority of someone else. Again, back to verse 1. All right, so the governing authorities are deputies for the Lord. But then the word avenger is ekdikos. It means carrying out justice. It's a punisher is what the word means. A punisher. It's someone who punishes wrongdoing. But if we jump back to chapter 12 real quick from last week in verse 19. Go back, go back there with me. Paul says, Beloved, he says, Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance is ectocasis. It's the noun form of the verb ektikeo or avenge. Paul says, don't avenge yourselves, for vengeance is the Lord. He will repay. So Paul tells us to not avenge ektikeo yourselves, because the Lord says, vengeance ektikasis is mine. And the Lord's means of his ektikasis is an avenger, ektikos. And that avenger is the governing authority. So the way in which God enacts his vengeance the way he repays, as Paul tells us not to avenge ourselves, leave it to God. The way in which God does that is through the governing authority. You see God's purpose in there? That's how we begin to wrap our mind up. If we remove our filter and we seek to understand from God's perspective the way he seeks vengeance so that we don't is through the governing authority. It's through a process that exists on behalf of us for our good. God is protecting us from us and how we respond. But the question is, why can't we avenge? Why are we not allowed to avenge ourselves? I think the reason is because we don't want to avenge. To avenge someone seeking justice is the implication to avenge. But what you and I want is revenge. Revenge is a word where, where, where the, the retaliates retaliatory. Right? It's brought out of emotion. In anger, when it comes to revenge, we don't avenge, we want revenge. We don't want justice. We may say we do, but we want to feel better about how we were wrong. So God says, you don't do it. I've got something in place to do it for you, to protect you from yourself, so that things don't escalate out of hand. In verse 5, Paul says, therefore, he draws a conclusion now. One must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also now for the sake of conscience. The church, this should be our higher motivation. We subject ourselves to governing authorities not only because of what will happen to us if we don't, but most importantly, above all else, it's because it's the right thing to do. Now, who in here or watching online at some point in time, you're struggling with what 
what you should do in a particular situation or how you should respond to someone that, who is wrong with you. I've sat in conversations many times with individuals who have been wronged. They're struggling with how to respond and what to do. And they're encouraged in some way, hey, here's what you do that would honor the Lord. Oh, I don't really want to do that. Why do I have to do that? And the response is, simply put, it is the right thing to do. But we scoff at the right thing to do oftentimes. I don't, I don't want to do the right thing. The right thing is girly. The right thing is, is, is puny. The right thing is weakness. But as a matter of conscience, Paul says we do the right thing. To, come up, to, to subject ourselves to the governing authority and, and do what's good. There's, there's no reason to fear the government or that authority in our lives if we would do good. But do good for the sake of conscience because it's the right thing to do, not do good for the sake of, oh, I don't want to get in trouble for doing this. The consequences are going to be too dear. Now, we do need consequences in our lives. Many of the problems and issues that we have with children in schools and even adults nowadays is we have removed consequences. And for someone to grow up in a culture, in a world where there's no consequence at all, to be the victim is the highest form of esteem and never experience consequence, they're really going to struggle when they hear the gospel because when you begin to share the gospel with someone that's never experienced consequence and you confront them with their sin, but they don't understand consequence, how are they really going to grab a hold of the consequences of their sin if they've never experienced it? So consequences are a motivating factor, but above that should always be a matter of conscience. Because for if we go back to chapter 2, and the question of what about that person, how, what, how does salvation come? What, what about that person that lives on that other side of the world that has never heard the name of Jesus? That they don't have the law. They don't know that they're sinning. How would God condemn that person? Well, it's a matter of conscience. Their conscience bears witness against them. They know right from wrong inherently. I'm not to take this person's life that doesn't belong to me. So when we violate that conscience, we are sinning. Therefore, it is above all this. We do the right thing because it's the right thing and that's the way God has led us to do. And we do these things so that our conscience may be clear. However, I will say that a conscience is not an infallible guide. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. We should be careful in how we approach things. I've got a clear conscience. Therefore, what I've done is justified, and that's not the case. But it is a really good place to start. So on the one hand, it prompts us to be obedient, but on the other, it does set a limit to that obedience. Back to, again, when it comes to the authority. As long as that authority is, is, is leading and is creating policy and rules and laws and enacting them according to God's standard and not coming in conflict of that standard, we subject ourselves to it. When that authority comes out of that, yes, Blind obedience shouldn't exist there. We should resist. So now his conclusion, verse 6 and 7, says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. 
So now he says ministers. Earlier he said that they are the servant of God, but here now the ministers of God. Servant was diakonos, a deputy, but now ministers is leaturgos. Right? It's a public minister. But a good Old Testament example of this would be the Levites who were God's intermediaries or his priests on behalf of the people. They ministered to the nation on behalf of the Lord. But now these priests, they didn't receive an inheritance as the other tribes did. The Levites didn't receive an inheritance. The Lord was their inheritance. So the way that they were taken care of as they ministered to the people in the temple and in the tent of meeting and all the things that they did there as they ministered for God to the people is that they received tithes from the people. They received a portion of sacrifices. That's the way they were taken care of. God instituted that in such a way that the Levites would minister to the people, oversee the temple, but the people would support the Levites in their work by paying tithes to them. So the principle of support here is not dissimilar. They attend to this very thing, Paul says, ministering. Therefore, they are entitled to their wages, taxes. Now again, resist the urge to run this through our filter and where our tax money goes. I don't agree with all the places my tax money goes, but that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is you pay what is owed. As he says in verse 7, he says, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. He says, owe nothing at all to a governing authority. Give no opportunity for the sword to be brought against you. You give what is owed. Now quickly as we wrap up, as quickly as I can, often with a text such as this, our focus does shift to the imperfection of the authority that's over us. And then we look to excuses to not do the thing that God's word tells us to do, which is to submit to that authority. That struggle does exist, but Paul does not say be subject only under certain, situ- certain circumstances. But he also doesn't say to be subject in all circumstances. But we need to be discerning of how we respond. The circumstances can be dire. Circumstances can be really, really bad. But even in the most dire circumstances, how should we respond? Let's look at Peter real quick. Peter writing to the church in 1 Peter, he's writing, he's just a handful of years away from one of, at that point in time, probably the most devastating persecution against the church. And And Peter says this, he says very similar to Paul, be subject, exact same words, But he says, be subject now for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Verse 15 now, he says, for this is the will of God. So if we ever come to a point, what's the will of God for my life? Well, here's an example of it. Is you're to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution even to the emperor, even to his governors. This is the will of God. And he says that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now he says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor 
the emperor. Peter's writing this a handful of years away from a devastating persecution against God's people. The emperor at this point in time is Nero. He is going to have Christians thrown to lions. He's going to have Christians burned alive. He's going to make a spectacle in the Colosseum of God's people, Christians. Persecution is greatly coming upon God's people from this point in time of Peter's writing. And Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He ends with, honor the emperor. Now, how do we do that? Now, transcribe that to our day and age. We're not about to be thrown to lions, praise the Lord. We're not about to be burned alive in this country. There are countries on this planet, in this world, to be a Christian is life-threatening, very life-threatening. We struggle with some conversations and some immorality within our culture and how we engage with that culture, but there are parts of this world where it is life-threatening to be a Christian. But in our context, Peter says, honor the emperor. Honor everyone, but honor the emperor. How do you honor your president? How do you honor his cabinet? How do you honor the White House? How do you honor Congress? But our problem is, is we we look at that and we see everything that we deem to be wrong. And we don't, we we dishonor, we speak bad about, we don't pray for. I don't agree with a myriad of things that our president does in any shape, form, or fashion. But that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm free to dishonor him. I should be praying for him. But one thing Peter says here that I'd like to point out, and this is where we'll land. As Peter says, that we should be, le- we should be living as servants of God. Paul referred to governing authorities in Romans 13 as servants of God, diakonos, deputies, civil leaders. Peter here refers to the believer as servants of God, but the word is doulos. Diakonos, a deputy, someone who's been given authority. But Peter, he says that we are doulos. The word literally means slave. Now, some translations will translate this, depending on the context, servant or bondservant, but the word means slave. So deputies are appointed. Slaves are owned. Now, if we can for a moment, if you're watching online, wherever you may be, if we can for a moment, remove the negative connotation of that from our cultural standpoint right now. As if America created slavery. As evil as slavery is, but the word doulos here means slave. Peter says we are slaves of God. Romans 6, we were slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to righteousness. We belong to someone else. We've been set free from one thing to belong to something else. Church, we belong to God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. And that price was Christ's blood. And the reality is, church, what we fail to see and fail to apply is that blood was shed as much for you 
as for anyone else. That blood was shed for every governing authority that exists on this planet. As God has instituted it to oversee, Christ's blood would cover their sin if they would but come to him and receive his salvation and justification so that they may no longer be slaves to sin but slaves to righteousness. The way we turn a tide is we evangelize our culture. We engage with our culture in a loving way. We share the gospel, however difficult it may be. But church, if there's an unwillingness to engage in that way, but to passively sit back and do nothing with our faith, except scoff at the governing authorities because we disagree with what they're doing, when things go really bad and we really need to engage, how are we going to be received if we never do that well before things get really bad? We need to engage Share the truth that we know to be the truth. And church, it is not going to be easy. But in some ways, we've been at sleep at the wheel for a long time and unwilling to do that. Someone else is meant to go do that thing. But church, it begins right here. I say this often. If my heart doesn't change, if I'm not asking the Lord to change me, I have no business Asking him to change someone else. But Paul's command is to be in subjection to them. His caution is to not resist them. It exists there for the good of those that are underneath that authority. And we should pay what is owed. Matthew 22, here's where we end. 19 and 21, the, the Jewish leaders are, are seeking to trap Jesus and they ask him this question, you know, about paying taxes to Caesar. You know, should the Jewish person pay taxes? Jesus says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Church, there's our distinction. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We subject ourselves to the authority that God has instituted in our lives, but we render to God what is God's. And what is God's? If we are doulos, if we are God's slaves, if we belong to him, we are the thing that we should be giving ourselves to the Lord. First and foremost, his authority in our lives gives us peace as we trust him to do the things that are difficult in this life knowing that he's got us in his hand, no matter what may come. Whatever may come is acceptable, knowing that truth, that we belong to God. And church, I pray that we know that. As we wrestle through the tension of submitting to authority that's been placed in our lives, church, it begins in our homes, it begins in our marriages, Husbands, you should be submitting to God. Wives, you should submit to your husbands. Husbands, sacrifice for your wives. Employees, submit to your employers. So on and so on. We all come under authority in some way, but God is our ultimate authority. And if we won't submit there, why would we do it anywhere else? I pray that we start there. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your instruction. I thank you for instituting 
and authority over us, Lord, that would come underneath you, that is meant for good, so that the wheels don't fall off of society, so that things just don't fall into utter chaos. But I pray, Lord, just in that, and for our own hearts, that we would humbly come underneath that authority that you put in place, Lord. But I do pray for discernment, wisdom and discernment to see where we may resist, Lord, and, and just as importantly, how we may resist in that. How we as a church would stand on truth and make our voice heard to glorify you, not to glorify ourselves, not to just resist for the sake of resisting because I don't like what they're doing, but to see where things may come in direct opposition to your word, Lord, but be willing to lovingly but boldly proclaim your truth in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. But I pray that our hearts are not crooked and twisted in it. That we're holy and blameless and righteous as we submit to you, as we submit to the governing authority you placed over us, Lord. I pray that you help us to do that well. Lord, we love you and we thank you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.